Our reading this afternoon is from Luke 5:33 through 6:5. This is what the Holy Scripture says. And they said to him, The disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But the new wine must be put in with fresh wineskins. And no one after drinking old wine desires new, for he says, the old is good. On a Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some of the heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, Why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? And he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God, and he took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those with him. And he said to them, The Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. May God bless this reading of his word. Thanks be to God. The Barner Research Group has been following the religious and spiritual trends of our society for many years, and they've noticed something happening in the past several years. There's been a rise in two groups of people. Uh, the first group are those who love Jesus, but not the church. Uh, this group may still hold tightly to Orthodox Christian beliefs, but not so tightly to a visible church community. The second group are those who are spiritual, but not religious. They've rejected religion altogether, any outside institution, any historic set of beliefs, they prefer to define their own boundaries for spirituality. They like Jesus, or they don't like Jesus, or they just like pieces of Jesus. And they mix beliefs and practices from a variety of sources. The singer Valerie June, for example, put it this way, I'm not religious, but I am spiritual, and I'm creating my own practice. That pretty much sums it up, I think, for many people today. Uh, there are many reasons why there's an increasing number of these two groups of uh, people, those who love Jesus but not the church, and those who are spiritual but not religious. Those in the first group have likely experienced hurt, betrayal, abuse, or some sort of judgment within the church, and that experience has been so traumatic they don't trust those in positions of spiritual authority. Kind of like a dog that's been rescued from an abusive home. Uh, he won't come to strangers wagging his tail. Instead, he cowers under the bed, uh, afraid of being hit. And so it's important for us as a church family to realize and to understand in this growing number of people that we need to approach them with compassion and patience and understanding. 
However, many of those in the second group haven't even been to church, haven't been exposed to the teachings of Jesus. They assume spirituality is very pliable and oftentimes can view spirituality from a very consumer mentality. What's important isn't what's true, it's whether it works for them. And so we need to understand with this second group, uh, we are just one of many options as a Christian church in the spiritual landscape today. Uh, Like a supermarket aisle, maybe you've been to the supermarket, you know, you have all these brands to choose from and they all look the same. And we have to show how Jesus is unique, how the Christian faith has something wonderful to offer them. That's our job. Now, what I love about the passage this afternoon is how Jesus speaks to both groups. Those who love Jesus, but not the church, and those who are spiritual, but not religious. Two things we discover about religion in our passage. That there is a wrong kind of religion, and there's a right kind of religion. So let's jump in first and see what is the wrong kind of religion? What does it look like? So the first thing that we notice is that the wrong kind of religion encourages us to police one another. Now, let me say from the start, I love police officers. Uh, So When we first think of a police officer, I encourage you to have this image come to mind. A police officer who is smiling, who is warm, we have it up there, right? Who who is friendly and who is there to serve the community. We have officers in in our church family. We love you. You're wonderful. However, there is a part of an officer's job that involves this. What is this officer doing? He's looking to catch you, isn't he? He's looking to get you speeding. That is not a warm, fuzzy feeling. Now think about the last time you saw a police car when you were driving. Did you smile to yourself and give thanks that that car was there protecting you and keeping you safe? When I'm driving and I see a police car, internally... I freak out. I quickly look at my speed. I look around for any traffic signs. If a police car pulls up behind me, that's when I particularly get anxious. I start to think to myself, are my tags up to date? Do I have a brake light that's broken? I make sure I come to a complete stop in an intersection, and I pause for a good second or two. I never do that when a police officer isn't around. Uh, The other day, I was about to make a U-turn across two yellow lines. And before I did, I saw an officer, a car, up a little bit up the street. So I drove the extra 200 yards to get to the appropriate place to turn around. Now, when, when I see a police officer in uniform, maybe if I'm at a, a store or something, I don't know about you, but I I suddenly maybe, you know, stand up straighter or, you know, I get a little anxious. I get a little concerned. I'm a little fearful. What's the officer going to see? Is he going to notice something about me? Religious people 
can cause us to feel the same way. People feel that way when finding out I'm a pastor. Uh, they start apologizing about their language. I'll meet somebody for the first time and we're talking, having a good time, and they'll begin to tell me about some explicit details about this crazy weekend they had in Las Vegas. And uh, then immediately will ask me what I do for a living. And I almost apologetically have to just kind of mumble, well, you know, I happen to be a pastor. And in that moment, I can actually see a change in them. They cringe visibly. Their face gets red. They're embarrassed. They think I've already condemned them. And unchurched people feel like that at church. They feel like, you know, it's a place where they're going to be judged and a place where they're going to be condemned. And this policing mentality is evident in our story, even in the verses leading up to um, our passage that we read this morning. If you were to turn to your Bibles or look on your Bible app, uh, the verses right before verse 33, we see the Pharisees and the scribes grumbling to Jesus' disciples, why do you eat and drink with, with tax collectors and sinners? The Pharisees and scribes are, were the highly religious leaders of, the, of Jewish society. One commentator refers to them as the sticklers. And they felt that it was their job to make sure everyone else was following the rules. And the rule that Jesus was breaking was this. You don't eat with sinners. You don't do that. But the, the sticklers weren't done. They had more offenses to notice. And so in our story, starting in verse 33, we see that they point out to Jesus and his disciples that they didn't fast. And they're confused. Um, fasting would involve not eating, maybe even not drinking. And in almost all religions, not just Christianity, fasting communicated that you were serious about your faith. You do not mess around when you fast. And Jesus was this apparent religious teacher recruiting and training disciples. And he didn't give any attention to fasting. So for the sticklers, they're looking at him and going, how can he take himself seriously as a spiritual leader? It didn't make sense to them. And so they're listing off Jesus' offenses and violations Jesus and his disciples ate with sinners. Jesus and his disciples didn't fast. And then we see in chapter 6, the sticklers catch them violating the Sabbath. Now, this slide will give you an idea of what the disciples uh, were doing as they were walking through the fields. Uh, they were plucking these grains of, of wheat and they were rubbing them in their hands, and they were eating the heads of the grain. Now, the Sabbath was the one day each week that faithful Jews were supposed to refrain from working. They were expected to rest on the Sabbath. And the sticklers believed that the disciples, by going through the field, getting the grain, doing this, and eating it, 
they were not obeying that command. They were not resting. And so the ticket violation is filling up here. They eat with sinners. They don't fast. They break the Sabbath. And Luke seems to be showing us a very important lesson that we need to hear today. It's easy for religion to encourage us to police one another. Hundreds of years ago, a religious reform group started. They were known as the Puritans because they wanted to purify the Church of England. And some of our most treasured books and sermons in our Reformed Christian tradition come from the Puritans. We love the Puritans. And in many ways, they've gotten a bad rap. And that's caused some to define a Puritan this way. A Puritan is a person who suffers from an overwhelming dread that somewhere, somehow, someone may be enjoying himself. And you know... It isn't only Puritans who could fall into that trap. We need to see that this could be us. We could fall into the same trap. And if we notice it happening, we need to be quick to repent. We need to grow in self-awareness. When we find ourselves being overly critical of one another, or those outside the walls of this church, criticizing people's behavior, analyzing people's words and language. We fall into this trap. And we begin to follow the footsteps of the Pharisees and the scribes when we do this, not in the footsteps of Jesus. So we need to be careful. That's the first thing we notice in this passage. The second thing, the wrong kind of religion worships tradition. Now, this can happen so subtly, and it it becomes really deadly to our faith, actually. Notice what happened with the Pharisees and the scribes. Their tradition became God's law. Did you notice that? Their tradition became the measuring stick by which you could please God. Now, notice the example of fasting here in the story. The Old Testament law only required a faithful Jew to fast once a year on the Day of Atonement. Fasting was an act of repentance for grieving your sin, so this was an outward discipline that revealed an inward spiritual reality. And so over time, the Pharisees, the sticklers, assumed if fasting once a year was a good thing, Why not fast more than once a year? They developed their own religious expectations, their own traditions, and they started to say, well, if you're really serious about your faith, you're going to fast not once a year. How about twice a week? If you really cared about your spiritual life and pleasing God, why not fast over a hundred times a year? And so this tradition became law. And the religious elite used it as a way to judge whether you were acceptable or not. And they did the same thing with the Sabbath. The Sabbath is actually articulated in the Ten Commandments. Anyone know which commandment? 
talks about the Sabbath. Which number? Okay, I've got some fours going up. Some fours, all right. Everybody's afraid to speak. That's all right. So, yes, the fourth commandment. Now, what isn't obvious in the story is that the Old Testament law was somewhat silent on the details of what it meant to refrain from working. What exactly does it mean to rest? What exactly does it mean not to work? And so the Jews were aware of this. And in the Mishnah, which was a collection of more detailed elaborations of, on the law, uh, it said this, the rules about the Sabbath are as mountains hanging by a hair, for the scripture is scanty while the rules are many. And so over time, the sticklers developed more detailed instructions on how to observe the Sabbath, and these instructions became their tradition, and their tradition eventually to them became law. And according to that list, because the disciples took the grain, rubbed it in their hands, ate it, they were guilty of reaping, threshing, winnowing, and preparing food. And so here's where we need to be careful. We need to be careful and see that Jesus is not condemning tradition. Okay? Tradition is a good thing. Tradition is a necessary thing. But Jesus is clarifying something about the authority of tradition. Our tradition should always be subject to the word of God. That's what Jesus does here in chapter 6 in verses 3 to 4. He answers the sticklers by referring to the story from 1 Samuel. Now in that story, King David with his men... Um, gathered the special bread that was in the tabernacle that was there only for the priests to eat. Now, in the story, David wasn't disciplined by the high priest for doing this. So Jesus is saying, look, David did it and it was okay. And so what, look what Jesus is doing. Jesus is elevating the word of God above their tradition. And he's clarifying what they've attached their hearts to. They haven't attached their hearts to the word of God. Instead, they're using their tradition as their ultimate authority. In other words, they're worshiping their tradition. And of course, we can be guilty of that today, can't we? Now, we're Presbyterians. We love tradition. <laughs> we, we marinate in tradition. Ooh, and it feels good. We like it. <laughs> Tradition is helpful, but it isn't God's law. And I think what's very helpful is for us to see, it's very tempting for us to do the very same thing that the Pharisees and the scribes did. It's even tempting to put tradition above people. And I think that's the point Jesus is trying to make here, that the Sabbath was never intended for people to go hungry. Uh, in the story following this one in Luke 6, it's, we're told it's another Sabbath day, and we're told that Jesus was teaching, and a man was there listening, and he had a withered right hand. 
And we're told that the sticklers were in police mode. They're watching. They're ready to get Jesus. And Jesus asked them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? And you know what Jesus ends up doing, right? He's going to heal the guy. And that's what he does. And he lets the sticklers condemn him for it. And they do. Aha! He broke the Sabbath. You saw it. We all saw it. He worked. He broke the Sabbath. And Jesus is trying to show them, listen, the greatest of all the commandments, love God, love people. Don't let your tradition get in the way of doing that simple thing. And we've gone astray if our tradition causes us to do that, leads us to value and uphold our tradition more than loving people. That's when, when religion goes terribly wrong. All right, enough about the wrong kind of religion. Let's look at the right kind of religion. What do we learn here? Well, we see in these stories that the right kind of tradition encourages laughter and tears. Laughter and tears. What do I mean by this? The right kind of a religion encourages us to express our joy and our grief. The right kind of religion encourages us to express ourselves, the full range of our emotions that make us human. In fact, one of my favorite quotes is by Dick Staub in his book about you. Jesus didn't come to make us Christians. He came to make us fully human. Do you, do you see the difference? Being fully human involves feeling free to express your sadness, your grief, your despair, but also your joy, your success, your hope. And I believe that's part of Jesus' argument here in Luke 5. Jesus doesn't condemn fasting. Did you notice that? He's simply arguing that it isn't always appropriate. And he uses that analogy in verse 34 about the wedding and how inappropriate it would be to fast at a wedding ceremony. Celebration, how many of you uh, brides... Or soon to be brides, you know, can you imagine being at your wedding and your guests are all moping around, refusing to eat the meal? You know, come and shake your hand and go, oh, yeah, I guess, yeah, this is great. No, you want them happy, you want them celebrating, you want them to see how important this is, you want them to feast. And one of those spiritual realities that fasting symbolized was a longing for God's presence. For God to come and rescue his people. That's why the Jews fasted. That was part of it. And fasting says this, God, I want you more than food. And what is Jesus saying here? Jesus is saying, hey, God is here. I'm here. It's a time to celebrate that. And he alludes to his death here when he says, The days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away, and then they will fast. 
Then they will mourn. Then they will grieve and it will be appropriate. But not now. And so the coming of Jesus was the dawning of a new day. And that's why Jesus talks about the new and old garments. That's why he talks about the new and old wine. You can't mix the two. They don't go together. In other words, don't live as if the Messiah hasn't come because the Messiah has come. That's what Jesus is saying. And this is something to celebrate. It's a reason to feast, not mourn, not fast. And now that Jesus has come and Jesus has died and Jesus has been raised from the dead, we live now in this in-between state because, yeah, Jesus was raised from the dead, but we're looking ahead to when he's going to come back. And so we live in this age where it's appropriate to do both. We fast because we want Jesus to come back. We long for God's presence. We're tired of suffering we're tired of disease. Life is hard. We want to be with Jesus. Death is all around us. But we also celebrate. We feast. We laugh. We know Jesus has won the day. And the right kind of religion practices both laughing and crying, feasting and fasting. And we need to be aware if we tend towards one or the other. Churches are usually known for one or the other, right? Some churches focus on the victory Jesus has won. And it's all about victory talk. And it's, yeah, Jesus has won. Yeah, let's be up. Let's be excited. Let's celebrate. And then there's other churches that are known more for focusing on sin and suffering and struggle. And we're probably more here than here. John Calvin described the Pharisees in Luke this way. These fasters were too gloom-ridden and turned in on themselves. Oh, Lord Jesus, may that not be true of us. A good religion will remind us and lead us to mourn with those who mourn and laugh with those who laugh. And the rituals and rhythms of a, the right kind of religion, a healthy religion is going to encourage both regularly. So you may have noticed, we've tried to do something. Mark and I have been talking, the staff. We've been trying to do something with the, with the music. I don't know if you've noticed, but we've started. Have you noticed that? If you're visiting or new, it's been a long time since we've done that. We've never been an acu accused of being a happy, clappy church. It's just not us. Um, but what is clapping? Celebratory. When do you clap? When you're excited, when you're thankful, you put your hands together. And so it is spiritually healthy for us to express ourselves that way. In a way that's appropriate for us. We're not going to clap every song. But we're going to try to integrate it in our service. Because we want to express that side of celebration. 
in our worship. And sometimes you won't feel like it. I don't feel like it. Mark doesn't always feel like it. And that's okay. Because the right kind of religion leads you to places where you don't necessarily feel like being there. But being together in community and practicing these rituals and rhythms allow you to say, Lord, I don't feel it, but I'm going to do it because I hope the feeling will follow. And that's the kind of religion we want to express in our worship and in our lives. If I could redeem the Puritan stereotype somewhat, the Westminster Catechism starts off with this question. It's written by the Puritans, basically. Well, what is the chief end of man? And the answer is to glorify God. Now, they could have stopped there. And some people kind of view the Puritans like they did stop there. But they continued with this and enjoy him forever. And I love that. That is so good and so right that the right kind of religion is about enjoying God. They're enjoying God. And I think that's part of what Jesus is talking about here on the Sabbath when they're eating the grain. They are enjoying God's creation. They're enjoying it. They're savoring it. And oh, if we could do that more. Get out of our own heads and just go out and enjoy the fruit of what God has given us. And so we'll be cultivating a healthy church family when we're able to do these types of things together, when we're able to laugh together and cry together, and we have the freedom to express this, these range, this range of emotions. That's the right kind of religion. So let's end on this last point. Um, the right kind of religion points us to Jesus. The ultimate theme in these stories, and we see it clearly at the end of our passage here in chapter 6, is when Jesus declares, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Do you see what he's saying? It's all about Jesus. He's Lord over everything. The Sabbath itself points to resting in Jesus. Rest from your work. Rest from your attempts to try to appease God. Rest from your attempts of trying to be this righteous, moral person. Rest from that because the Lord of the Sabbath has done it for you. It all points to Him. And so the right kind of religion will point you to Jesus. To rest from your striving, to rest from your need to control it. And this is one of the great benefits of the right kind of religion. When you're living and experiencing and participating in a kind of religion that makes Jesus central and consistently puts him at the forefront... And when your eyes are focused on Jesus, you're not able to police everybody else. You're not worried about everybody else. Because you're in love with him. And so you're not, you're not you know, writing down the violations of everybody else. 
whether they're acting right, whether they're talking right. Because you're, you're concerned with pleasing Jesus first, above all. And so I think, you know, the most dangerous part of these current groups that are gaining popularity, the ones that, you know, those who love Jesus and not the church, and those who are spiritual but not religious, it's so easy, friends, when you disconnect from, from the Christian faith, it's so easy to become inwardly focused and ultimately very narcissistic and self-centered. If you fit in one of those grooves, I want to lovingly challenge you to consider you've been duped into believing the consumer lie of our culture that tells you that the most important thing is whether you want it and whether it works for you. That it will make you happy. That's the consumer lie that our culture feeds us. And you probably, if you're in one of those two groups, you probably have a lot of good reasons for why. Um, but my guess is, your starting question is, what do I want, and will it make me happy? And what I want you to consider, maybe, maybe the question should be, what does Jesus want? What does Jesus want? Start there. The author Anne Rice was a famous convert to Christianity. She wrote a variety of types of literature, some vampire novels, maybe you've read it. She, she became a Christian, and then in 2007, she eventually left the Christian faith, and she said this, It's simply impossible for me to belong to this quarrelsome, hostile, disputatious, and deservedly infamous group. For ten years I've tried, I've failed, I'm an outsider, my conscience will allow nothing else. Now, she probably has a, many good reasons for why she came to that decision. And the truth is, the church can be like that. We can be quarrelsome. We can be hostile. I don't think I've ever heard us called disputatious. <laughs> she must be a writer. Um, but, but it's true of us. And those who know Jesus are willing to admit that. Hopefully, you're willing to admit that. And that's why we need him. And so we're not pretending to be any different than who we are. But Laura Ortberg-Turner puts it well when she, in quoting a friend, says this, to say that you love Jesus but hate religion is akin to saying you love your best friend but hate his wife. That relationship will not last. Why? Because Jesus calls the church his bride. Remember Jesus talked about the bridegroom. He referred to himself as the bridegroom. He referred to himself as coming to this wedding. Who's his bride? The church. <laughs> and his bride is quarrelsome. And his bride is hostile. His bride is ugly at times. And yet, he is making her beautiful. That's what he came to do. And so, be a part of that. Connect, commit, give yourself to the right kind of religion that will point you to Him, Jesus, Lord 
of the Sabbath. Let me, let me pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for this passage that reminds us to, to look to you first and in all things and to find rest in who you are. We love you and we pray, Lord Jesus, help us to live out the truths of this passage for your glory. Amen.